Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. To this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. You come to be on a wave of news that the podcast is doing record numbers and we are just flying high in the podcast charts. Is that a bit too boosterish? <laughs> I was just about to say, <laughs> um, yes. Are we allowed to say that? Can we modestly say that we're very happy to have all our lovely listeners? should we say a minor uptick you see I think I've imbibed far (laughs) too many motivational podcasts and articles about how women never say that they're the top of everything and now I'm perhaps overreaching slightly but no no, that's good I'm not sure what we can say we're the top of let's just say we're doing well we're going strong and as I say we've got lots of lovely listeners and we're very happy to have you all tell all your friends I would say a niche quadruple our numbers hosted by middle-aged women who like talking about their gardens we are almost undoubtedly number one and I challenge all comers to provide evidence to the contrary we are also on our travels soon aren't we Lucy we're going to be at Kenwood House we mentioned this last week at the Mm. How the Light Gets In festival on September the 18th but I think we've confirmed our guests which I was cheekily pointing out were a little bit of a mystery not just to the listeners but to us last week but now they are not they're not. We're very happy to have Rana Mitter, who we did talk to not that long ago, not very good at time. He's a China specialist, China, mm. the history of China and the language and all of that. And we talked to him about the transcription of Chinese into the digitization of Chinese. Mm. 
which was totally fascinating. So he's going to join us again, which is brilliant. And Sophie Ward, who we haven't talked to. So that's going to be really fascinating, who was an actress and is now a writer. And in fact, I've been reading her new novel, The Schoolhouse, which is a sort of really interesting kind of layered time, suspense, mystery, very, very interesting, really enjoying it. So we'll be thrilled to talk to them. And what else have we been up to in this biblical reign that we're having this week? Well, what about you, Lucy? Me, I haven't been up to very much. Though I was going to point to something, which I've got nothing to do with. It's just something that I'm interested in, that the Hugo Awards for science fiction and fantasy have been uh, announced for this year. And I was just pleased to see that there's a lot of brilliant writers in there, of course, and uh, a lot of women, possibly all women in the major categories. I'm not completely sure which for an industry that has historically struggled, shall we say, with letting mm. in any, anyone but the old usual suspects. Uh, and one of the winners is Arcady Martin, who I've read, who's very, very good. Becky Chambers, who was kind of up and coming and is now an established, really, really interesting sort of thought experiments and science fiction that she does. And the mighty N.K. Jemison, who I think is wonderful. So all power to them. But I haven't been doing anything myself, but you, Alex, have, I believe. I had a quick whiz away from the Irish hills to London to have a really interesting chat with Hilary Mantel and her long-term acting collaborator, Ben Miles, and his brother, George Miles, who is a renowned photographer. And they have together made a photographic book that is sort of mirrors Thomas Cromwell's life in London. It's terribly interesting because it's not a kind of heritage-led you know, lovely pictures of old things. It's a kind of very sort of modern juxtaposition of the old and the new. It's really interesting. And has Hilary Mantel written for mm. it, as it were? Yes, she okay. has. But what, what's great. also what's particularly interesting, she's very keen to point out that she's not sort of written captions. She's not selected bits of the book that go with the pictures. The pictures and the parts of, of the trilogy that she's selected to go alongside these photographs are kind of in conversation with with one another. It was very, very interesting conversation about history and the new and the idea of finding those kind of marginal spaces where we're letting meaning emerge rather than imposing it. Very, very oh. interesting. It sounds like the perfect, I mean, it's a bit early for this and I am sorry, perfect Christmas present for kind of wolf hole nerds <laughs> among yes. whom I count myself. <laughs> yes, it really is. It really is. We've got all sorts of other Perfect Christmas presents. It's not that early. I mean, I've been getting Christmas in July emails for quite some time. Oh, well, yes, but uh, they're depressing. <laughs> they are a bit depressing. But with various things we're going to talk about this week, we're joined by the TLS's Thea Lenaduzzi, of course, a host of this podcast, who'll be telling us about writing the history of her Italian family. And Edmund Gordon is here to discuss Lessons, the new novel by Ian McEwan. But first, we're going to talk about a new book published this week, Dandelions, which tells the story of a family, but weaves in a whole lot of other strands, personal, political, historical and more. Our reviewer in the TLS this week calls it a virtuosic exercise in narrativist life writing, and it is written by someone dear and familiar to our listeners, none other than Thea Lenaduzzi. Since we're in the lucky position of knowing the author for this one, we asked her to join us and talk about her book. Thea, thanks so much for coming. Hello, it's so nice to be here, although slightly disconcerting to be on the other end. That's what I was going to say, on the other side of the fence. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can imagine how I feel, like a complete interloper. (laughs) 
May I stay really quiet. You could not be more welcome. <laughs> so lovely to have you back on the podcast. Oh, it's Leah. lovely to be here. Thank you. We could just chat we could about do this for a while. Go, I yeah, I mean, this we, for a bit. we could just do this, but I think that what we want to do is move on to your wonderful. I'm not going to do this too much because it's just going to seem like terrible log rolling, but your. <laughs> your wonderful book I'm going to say so it starts it's called dandelions it actually starts with dandelions were they the starting point for you or was it something completely different and then you decided to use that as a as a narrative device I don't remember weirdly I think it did start with dandelions but I was trying to I was thinking about this the other day because I know that people are going to ask me this question and I can't remember whether dandelions came first it's a bit sort of chicken and egg I know that I wanted to think about my nonna my grandma I know that I wanted to spend some time kind of bedding down in her, as it were, you know, getting to spend some serious time thinking about her and her life and her stories and how she is, who she is. And I think probably dandelions just came to me quite early on because, you know, as, as I say in the book, they're just this integral part of our family because they are, we eat them, you know, quite simply, we eat dandelion leaves most dinner times. We wilt them, put a bit of oil on them, a bit of lemon juice, maybe salt, pepper, and, and they go. But also because of what they sort of came to represent in our family, it's my nonna when she lived in Manchester, she'd emigrated to Manchester in 1950. And she was often to be found kind of stooping down behind a, a co-op, behind an abandoned distribution centre, a parking lot or, or, you know, wherever at the side of the road just uh, bobbing and weaving between other things to pick up the dandelions, to take them home for dinner. And everyone in Britain thought she was nuts, presumably. Mm, you know, what, what's mm. she doing um, ferreting around in the muck where animals do their business? And it sort of has always been this image that, that's just stayed with me, this image of this solitary woman, my nonna, trying to replicate, trying to keep with her something from where she had come from and from, you know, what her mum used to put on the table from, for her and what her mum would have put on the table for her this food that has kind of been passed down the generations. Also, it's a very good symbol of the kind of slight, I don't know if alienation is too strong a word, but, you know, dandelions, you get them all over the place. But as mm. you say, the way that you use them, that your family in Italy uses and treats them is very different from the way that yeah. they are thought of over here. So yeah. already just with that very simple thing, as you say, you know, maybe the English people, especially in 1950, might have been like, what on earth is she doing? Was that already exactly. got that? remove as it were yeah yeah and I mean, they, I mean, they quite move simply, don't they they move they, they are scattered to the, to the winds and can exactly and I mean they, they sort of just offered themselves up to me these dandelions as a kind of a ready-made motif really for uh, precarious living but also as you were saying Lucy quite simply it's something that we Italians and other nationalities and other cultures as well something that we eat and we value as a really rich source of nutrients a food that is free you know it can be found anywhere as as you're saying it grows you know pretty much everywhere except for the extremes of both poles we think it has great value but other people just think of it as a weed to be eradicated pluck it out of your lawn you know it's mm. ruining your beautiful manicured lawn it's unsightly it's a nuisance uh, so there's yeah that very very clear contrast between the way that it would have been seen as you said in 1950s Manchester I mean okay fine there was dandelion and burdock and the Victorians used Which to have dandelion delicious. leaves in their sandwiches yeah. I think but those days mm. are quite far behind us and I don't think your average British person in 1950s Manchester would have been plucking dandelions for dinner. They're um, quite big in in rural Ireland I should say and my mother-in-law calls them piss or pissabeds. Oh right oh, they're they're just, they're just, do they also just, call them blowballs? 
yes and, and yeah. yes i think you do but you know this potential i mean they're a diuretic i suppose yeah. potentially yeah, exactly. and that you know that's got a sort of you know just a kind of everyday usage is that they will make you as it were piss the bed i mean i'm sure they i'm sure they don't exactly but yes yeah. she would say oh look at look at your look at your big field of piss beds and you'd say excuse me <laughs> so the central figure here as you say is, is your grandma your nonna can you sort of articulate for us a bit why you wanted to write about her and about her life why her in particular within your family well I've never not known her <laughs> she was born in 1926 she's um she's been a constant for my life for my dad's life obviously her life spans most of the 20th century and she's always been this kind of family repository of stories I suppose she's a storyteller but you know that's not to say that her stories are these really complicated or, or um, professionally told affairs they're, they're quite often fragments but they're fragments that are kind of thrown to us again and again and again as I said I've heard them all my life and I just thought she's approaching 100 now and I just wanted to to mine that resource <laughs> that sounds really 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 crude but that, that is <laughs> I'm what sure it, it is you know I really wanted yeah. to, I really wanted to just spend time with her giving her stories their due asking questions rather than just letting them wash over me and not asking those questions because you know time is there time is time is moving and mm. she won't be there to give us those stories forever so we need to take them into our own hands tell and them our own way but you know look after them in one way or another um, and Thea, how did you do it? Did you sit down with her for, as it were, sort of, you know, storytelling sessions, capturing all this? Did you say to her, we're going to sit down now and I'd like <laughs> you to tell me about this, that and the other? Or was it much more <laughs> organic? Was she aware that you were that you were sort of collecting up her stories yeah. for a particular project? Uh, organic is one way of putting it chaotic is another <laughs> so, so I mean I had yeah I had visions of, of, of myself going over there uh, to the Friuli to sit in her kitchen and you know saying to her right nonna tell me uh, you were born in 1926 and then what happened and then what happened and you know trying to follow some sort of linear biographical line but what happens with nonna is you ask her one question then all of a sudden you're talking about something completely different or, you know, she'll be distracted by this photo that she can see out of the corner of her eye or the TV on will, uh, will be on in the background and she'll see someone who looks like someone she once knew. <laughs> and you'll end up talking about her or him. So it was, yeah, it was it was chaotic. But that's true to the way that she is. That's true to her personality, to, to, to the way she tells the stories themselves. As I said, quite often they start, you know, they're fragments. They start in the middle, uh, end in the middle, start at the end. <laughs> and work back from there sometimes you'll think you're talking about an uncle and then it will turn out it was a cousin and uh, and things chop and change and that's part of the non-night experience if you like and so what would happen is yeah, I'd sit down with her for three four hours and we'd sift through stuff I'd ask her about stories that I'd heard a million times before and come up with something quite different to what I expected and then when I came mm. back home to England I would phone her every Every Friday we'd have our um, appuntamento, which had to be punctual because it needed to not clash with the rosary or her favourite TV soap uh, or lunchtime, yep. heaven forbid. Yep. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so we would we'd speak at least once a week and, and, and I'd record everything. And she did know, um, to answer your question, Alex, yeah, she did know. I think she knew before I did that it would become a book because at the time when I started, I was just doing it 
for myself and I suppose in a lofty way for the family for yes um, for posterity and what what did she sort of make of that idea did she she did she find it (laughs) (laughs) intriguing or sort of you know was there that kind of but these are just my stories why would you be collecting them or was she oh no sort of on board with what did she think of it I think she yeah as I say she knew it was going to be a bit before I did I think and she was very much but of course these are interesting stories of course you must tell them of course everyone wants to hear them to the point that she was right know this (laughs) I didn't know this when I when I started amassing family law as I sort of think of it she about halfway through she said oh I must give you my my diary I was like, oh, well, I had no idea. Yes, she, said, yes, she, said, she didn't call it her diary. She said, my book, I must give you my book that I started. And obviously my, I just, my heart exploded. And I thought, oh my God, she's got a book. She's written a book. And what it was, was a, a, a sort of diary, I suppose, that she started only about 20 years ago when my mum had indulgently said, oh, you know, you must, you must tell me more about your life. I think she possibly didn't quite mean it quite that sincerely. And on that, went away, couldn't sleep one night and just found an exercise book that was lying around the house, presumably from one of the grandchildren. It's got these two a really, really naff illustration of, of two punks, you know, cartoon punks with mohawks and loads of piercings, which I think captures something of the rebelliousness of Nonna and just started sort of stream of consciousness writing um, what had happened. And she says in the beginning, and this is a line that she repeats all the time, she repeated to me again and again, my life is a life lived real and without fiction and she was she's Mm. always insistent on that which I find interesting it's kind of slightly reminiscent of that Ginsburg line at the beginning of Family Lexicon where she says everyone in this book is real but I want you to read it like a novel well that's fascinating what do you you feel aware of that you know this is not fiction what that sort of meant you know why that was a really important thing for her to say and make clear to you because you know, she's been alive since 1926 and an awful lot has happened, not to mention the Second World War unfurling. She was born into, into fascism. She was born in the year that fascism, it became illegal to oppose fascism. So it was a real kind of doubling down, if you like, of Mussolini's role in mm. Italy and Italian history. And she emigrated twice, tried to emigrate the first time and it, and it ended in tragedy with the death of her dad when she was only nine. She emigrated again in 1950 when she was 24 with her family at this point. So many things happened, so many, you know, secret heart attacks, nervous breakdowns, lost lives of those closest to her. So many things happened in her life that I think the way that she sort of tries to understand it is almost as one of the soap operas that she has such a strong love for. She watches them again and again and she grew up reading romance novels And those are, I think, the ways that she sort of understands her life. She narrates it to herself along those lines. And that's sort of the way that you have to take it as well. So I think that's what she's saying. Everything happened, though I know it sounds like a novel. (laughs) Yes, I wanted to talk about narrative and also reading. They sort of figure throughout the book. You talk about the the romances that your nonna used to read, Liala for escapism, Mm. which you're not very keen on. But as you tell her story, you do wonder in the book what version she's telling and what version you're telling and what your motives might be, which is very refreshing to find that happening as you're reading it on the page, did you feel you had to do that to sort of to say, well, but obviously this is her version and now I'm, I feel the urge to tidy it up. And yeah, I think did you so. Feel you I had think, to talk about that. 
I think you have to. It's it's the only sort of honest way to to write about people's lives, I think, is to question why they are telling it that way and why you're telling it either that way or or a different way. So I think with her, it was always going to be how it was. She was always going to romanticize the way that she does. And I think for me, I wanted to respect that totally, but also to sort of question it. I think, you know, we're shaped by what we read. We are what we read. And she is those novels that she grew up reading. They gave her such comfort when she lost her dad. They framed the way that she entered into a relationship with my nonno eventually, who she married. And they frame the way that she looks back over those years. She's a big fan of suspense. So when she tells stories, she tells them with that in mind. You know, we all have these mechanisms, these motifs that we kind of use to structure the way that we tell the stories of our lives. And it's the same with me. The way I want to tell the story of my nonna is shaped by the way that I've read and what, what I've read. So, yeah, it felt, it felt like the, the only honest way to, to do something like this, really. Mm. And you said that at the outset it was it was going to be a record of her life. So did it it naturally evolved into including all these other things? Because it's yeah. got social history, political history, autobiographical stuff, etymology, which I love. There's loads <laughs> of etymology, folklore and illness and food. Did you set out to make it a hybrid of all this or did that just grow? I think, again, it was always going to be that way precisely because of the way that what I've grown up reading, what I've grown up enjoying what I am interested in you know so it's a sort of a map of my own mind which sounds scary don't don't be put off by that I hope <laughs> <laughs> welcome to my mind welcome but to it's Thea's also, world it's also slightly reminiscent of the central motif which is after all the dandelion and you know it's the, they're these seed balls heavy heavy seed balls with hundreds and thousands of seeds in them and each has a potential to go off and become something in its own right and they're held together in this kind of fragile tension and they all may be completely different. They can go and be something completely different once they part. But at the moment, they're held together in this haze of potential, I suppose. And so I think it's, again, it's like it's, it's about being true to experience and true to the way that the mind works and, and associative thinking, you know, is the way that I <laughs> operate. And etymology, just to, to pick up on that point, etymology, I think, is in large part because I'm a linguist, I suppose, you know, English and Italian and French. So I've always enjoyed picking up words, turning them over, thinking about where they come from, what they could mean, what they sound like, even if they're not related, um, mm. and the way that your, your mind plays on those different things. So, yeah, I love, it was um, always going to be that way. Just incidentally, I love it when you're, was it, was it your, was it a great grandma walking through Manchester and then the only thing she could remember was Cheetam, which you've <laughs> written down as it would be written in Italian, as it were. Yeah. I'm just saying to people, cheetam. Cheetam, cheetam. Yeah, no, that Eventually, was my nonna, actually. That was nonna, that was nonna. Yeah, that was nonna. Yeah. That was when she had just come back over to Manchester for the second time, so in 1950. And she had been in Cheetam with her dad when he had attempted to bring the family over the first time in the early 30s. And she was looking for this church that he had taken her to not long before he died. And she was convinced that it was Lord's. She thought that it was there that she would find the Madonna in her grotto. Um, mm. And so she sets off to look for this church and, and all she has is, is Cheetham and some cobbled together directions that a Genovese lady gave her based on her description. <laughs> but she finds it and she all sorts it. of other things along the way. Yeah. She yeah. does, yeah. Thea, I wondered, you know, obviously writing this kind of memoir of intimate family history and life is, is an act of love and preservation 
of those people who are very dear to you and of, of their histories and their culture. How much was it also for you a part of elaborating what your Italian identity means to you, what that link to a country that you don't live in feels like to you now? 100% that's something that really drove the whole project was me trying to figure out what my relationship is, what my relation to Italy is now that I haven't lived there for almost 18 years. So next year will be my, I will have been half of my life in Italy and half of my life in England by that point. And I'm expecting to have some kind of, uh, oh no, sorry, this year, in fact, this this month, in fact. This oh my gosh, is, it's right now. Yeah. It's right now that I'm going to have an existential crisis. I hope that's oh. okay. Um, pardon, after I'll the just, podcast. I'll just go after on and do it quietly. Okay, no, I'll do it Could after you... the podcast. Okay, so I'm Thanks. due an emotional and existential crisis. <laughs> but no, so I was trying to, yeah, trying to work out what it is that Italy is to me. And it's this concept of home, which is as baggy as you like, you know, because England is home as well. And can you have two homes? And how does it work in a culture which tends to, especially, you know, sorry to say the word, but post-Brexit, a culture that sort of seems to suggest that you have to choose one or the other. Are you in or are you out? Yeah, so it was very much driven by that. And the kind of, I then started to, to sort of dig around and, and try to familiarise myself with different concepts of, of belonging and how different people have seen it over the years. And, you know, you find that some of them are, are much more dangerous than others, as you know, the whole idea of belonging as an exclusive thing, you know, I belong and you don't. Um, then ideas about blood blood right to live somewhere or to not and things like that so yeah again it couldn't not be quite personal when I'm thinking about Nonna and her saying that England is as much home as Italy is and you know if you ask her now in Italy and she's lived there since 1971 when she went back to the Friuli to the exact um, place that she had come from if you ask her now um, if she could live one of the questions that my husband asked her once was, if you could live anywhere, uh, anywhere in Italy, and he was thinking, you know, she'd say something like Tuscany, which is where we had just come up from. If you could live anywhere in Italy, where would you live? And Nonna, without missing a beat, just goes, Manchester. Corner of Italy. <laughs> which in a way for her, when she was in Manchester, it was a corner of Italy yes. because she was living in, in a part of Manchester that was full of Italians from Naples, from Genoa, from Trieste, from wherever. So there yeah. I feel so much kind of recognition at a remove, as it were. My husband was his family were immigrants from Ireland to London. And he will often say that he didn't know anybody English until until he left home because yeah. they grew up in a kind of Irish enclave, went to a Catholic school where the other largest community was the Italian uh, immigrants. And they would, in school, they would play, as he said, the World Cup every day. <laughs> it would be Italy v Ireland every single yeah. day. And there was also, there was a Polish contingent and a very, very close friends of his family were an Italian family with whom we're all still in touch and as my friend's mother who late mother brought over with her from Italy some beans that she planted in her garden <laughs> and then lived for decades for decades in England and simply harvested the beans and replanted every mm -hmm. year so they continued to be the Italian and it was so important yeah. to her yeah and these communities and the, the connections they make between each other are such a sort of hidden story of immigration in a way aren't they mm. Mm. absolutely yeah totally um and that's that's the thing is so I was before I started writing 
what became the first chapter. It was originally, I'd sort of thought of it as the standalone essay, but it became the first chapter. Before I started writing that, I'd been reading um, Claire Wills, um, her book, um, Lovers and Strangers, about post-war um, migration. Book. An amazing book. In that, it sort of talks about how uh, one of the things that my nonna was and my nonna as well was were able to benefit from was in 1948 there was this uh, scheme to bring over Italian workers uh, who had all of these specialist skills um, and my nonna was he was he, he could make anything whether it was in stone or wood but he ended up working in Tirazzo which was you know Tirazzo floors are those floors that you see a lot in churches and, and, and department stores they're incredibly hard wearing and they're called poor man's mosaic which is it was a gift of construction for post-war Britain because you literally go and take bits of broken buildings, bits of tile, bits of stone that had been bombed to pieces and work them into a floor that you would then, you'd set it in like a heavy concrete and then you buff it and buff it and buff it until it shines. And it looks beautiful at the end. Um, these fragments of different colors and, and, and some is glass and some is tile and some is stone. Um, and that's what he ended up working in, incredibly skilled 15th century Venetian technique that didn't exist in England until until the Italians brought it over. Well, and my mom and I brought her a... skills to work in, in, in mills making clothes um, because there weren't enough of uh, enough people doing that. So the Italians came over, filled these jobs, were treated with contempt a lot of the time. Claire Wills quotes a foreign office official uh, saying, you know, don't trust the Italians because they have these romantic ways and they'll turn the eyes of the women, basically. Rather trust the Germans over the Italians because the Germans are hard workers and Italians are lazy and all of this sort of stuff, mm -hmm. which is, pardon my French or Italian bollocks, um, of course. <laughs> <laughs> That's a literary term. Hang on, what is, what is Italian? You say you're a linguist. Tell us what is Italian for bollocks? You wouldn't be describing wouldn't, a bollock. It, it wouldn't, wouldn't be a bollock. Be a that you would direct do translation. <laughs> Post bag is going to go mad now. Can I, wow. can I just say that that's not <laughs> one of the questions on our list? <laughs> <laughs> that's a real interpolation. That Honestly, Thea, well. you've just, I mean, talk about sort of every little bit of the picture, kind of just telling the story about my friend's mother bringing her beans. Her father was indeed a terrazzo. Maker. Oh, really? Yeah, oh. absolutely. And what I and again, all this is all this is my life. These are lives of people I've met. But the thing that I've heard about is the terribly, terribly hard physical work. Oh, incredibly! I mean, hard. Hands and and arms yeah. Yeah. absolutely sort of covered in tiny cuts and really and in the hard, days when really people, hard. there was very little health and safety, you know, so people absolutely. didn't wear uh, mouth covers, and so you would inhale a lot of mm. the powder. You'd get stone lung. Um, I think they called it which is basically lung cancer, which is what my nonno died of in the end. So yeah, incredibly grueling, but incredibly skilled work. And he worked as hard. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. How does anyone? Can I ask you, this is kind of part of the the idea about foreignness and what you were saying about the idea about belonging and I belong and you don't kind of thing, because the pandemic comes into the book along with discussions of other illnesses and the old these old cycles of fear and hostility towards others that might be foreigners who might be the ones bringing the plague, as it were. Mm. Did you feel that these concerns about illness and sort of xenophobia and hostility, were they heightened by the pandemic and ideas about freedom of movement? Did that concentrate it, as it were? Yeah, definitely. I think when I started writing, I was probably about halfway through, I think, when COVID came and I remember really wringing my hands over whether or not I could write the book ignoring COVID because I didn't want it to be a book that brought COVID in it because I thought it would, I don't know, I just thought it would kind of change the whole mood of it. But then it became unavoidable mm. because, well, A, I couldn't get to my non anymore. So the phone calls became even more important. B, I couldn't even get to Italy. And so the longing for, for home became all the more intense. And well, my parents it, it must It must have been the case when some of the first pictures we were seeing were coming from Italy. Exactly. Well, I'm, I'm from so north of Italy as well. And from northern Italy, where it looks yeah. so utterly exactly. terrifying. Yeah, my, my cousin is a, is a nurse, and so he was working on, you know, the front line. And a classic Italian reaction to, I suppose, was there was a, a tradition, a thing that people did during the early days of COVID, which was if you had someone who was working in, in hospital or was a key worker, um, you would hang the tricolor flag out of your window to say, you know, my son or daughter is on the front line, basically. Uh, so it became this incredibly patriotic thing as Italy was going through what was always conceptualized as a war, you know, a war against mm. this disease. So emotions were running incredibly high understandably and yeah I think because Italy and Italians are the stereotype is always that we're a nation of hypochondriacs it became a part of the story it could not be a part of the story and apart from the fact that whenever I talk to my nonna if I'm on the phone for you know an hour a good 45 minute 45 minutes of that will be her talking about her ailments and asking me about mine which aren't really ailments but we have to sort of ham it up and and turn them into ailments <laughs> and if you don't have an ailment you better find one because otherwise you've got nothing to contribute to the to the conversation <laughs> so you'd be spiriting up a twinge in your back or something yeah exactly exactly <laughs> um but so yeah so illness is is a part of the is a part of the story and it's the way that we sort of conceptualize a healthy society as well as whether it's healthy is whether there are people coming in to keep it healthy or to do the jobs to have children all of these things and depending on which side of the fence you sit on that's either thanks to immigration god thank god these people are coming over and giving our giving our economy a boost etc etc or the other side is these people are coming over and, and bringing our country down to its knees they're like a disease you know all of this sort of stuff mm. and the early days of covid the disease itself was being carried 
uh, they said by, you know, it came from China, so all Far East Asian people were treated suspiciously. Xenophobia went through the roof again. And it happens whenever things like this happen. Whenever and there that- is a perceived disease in any society, it's who can you blame? Mm, mm. Mm. And that become that becomes one of the another one of the narrative threads, doesn't it? Because the first wave of it that you talk about, I suppose, is the back in the 1920s. Well, let's talk about this for about four and a half hours. We haven't even got <laughs> onto plants and food, but we have to stop, sadly, just because time exists, as you said earlier <laughs> on. And we're gonna have to stop without even knowing how to say bollocks in Italian. <laughs> So, Let's just say the so polite that, version, which is non è vero, which is it is not true. Well, that's that would be, a very that would be polite what I would have version. said if I had been more eloquent in the moment. <laughs> very <laughs> polite version. But yes, the point is that it's a very rich book with all of these. I mean, we haven't touched on, on lots of things that you talk about. And it's really wonderful. And it's out this week. So uh, again, at the risk of sounding log rolling, why don't you all go and buy it and read it? <laughs> and thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank I'll you put so, the 50 so quid in the post. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's gone up. It's 55. It's, e- it's 50 quid each, each, right? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, thank you. That was just amazing. Really thank you so thank much. You so thank much. you so, so much. Take care. Thanks, guys. Thank you. to come on the show we explore a novel that juxtaposes a personal life in crisis with the political and social upheaval of the last few decades and if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark. Lessons is Ian McEwan's 18th novel and his longest to date, a near 500 pages from a writer who has previously shown great fondness for and affinity with the novella form. But this time he has a whole life to tell, that of Roland Baines, whom we follow from childhood to old age. It's a narrative that encompasses not only personal turning points, such as a disturbing encounter with a school teacher, and a wife who abandons him and their infant son, but also great historical events such as the Suez and the Cuban Missile Crises, Chernobyl and COVID. Edmund Gordon has reviewed lessons in this week's paper and joins us now to tell us more. Welcome, Edmund. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, whole life novels. I mean, there's a certain genre, isn't there? I'm thinking of William Boyd, Thomas Hardy, Kate Atkinson, there are lots of examples. They are a very particular genre, aren't they? And I think this is the first time that Ian McEwan has written one. 
Well, I was just querying that uh, to myself as you did your introduction, because in fact, some of his much shorter books have sort of spanned the course of a life. They've just done it in a lot less space. I mean, on Chesil Beach, um, most of the book spans just one night. But then at the end, it sort of, uh, it tracks forwards across the rest of, of the two protagonists' lives. But certainly it's the first time he's done this kind of book where he really sort of capacious, rangy book going into all kinds of different life experiences. In other words, it's not that the chronological stretch is much greater than anything else he's done. It's the sort of uh, amount of detail that he allows in. I suppose it has a kind of, relationship with the sort of picaresque in a way? Sort of. I'm certainly insofar as they're not tightly focused and there's a kind of ranginess and movement to it. I mean, it's, it's certainly different from anything he's previously attempted in terms of its span and in terms of the kind of looseness of the structure. It's not sort of tightly built around one particular event and the repercussions of that event. It tries to take in broad kind of view. You make this point that, you know, there are these, he's known for these dramatic events that sort of explode his narratives, like the march that he gets embroiled in in Saturday, like the ballooning accident at the beginning of Enduring Love. And, and it's often something very dramatic and destructive that's planted in the narrative early on. Mm. And uh, thinking about this novel, I mean, there there is, in a way, there is something like that it's just that it's not kind of the only thing we open the book don't we with this encounter that he has as a child that he's then remembering as he goes through another personal crisis later in his life when his wife has suddenly disappeared and indeed he is sort of briefly suspected of having a hand in her disappearance yeah so in a sense there are two major traumatic events here rather than the one he tends to focus on and I feel like this novel is in some respects a corrective to the impression given by his earlier novels that lives can be built around a single turning point, that a single event can dramatically shape a life and change the course of a life, which is an idea that he's actually expressed some scepticism about within those novels. He often has his narrator sort of querying the, the existence of turning points. But this novel is the first time that he has, within the form of the novel, really questioned that and shown all the different influences on a life and the impossibility of really tracing the effect of a particular turning point. I was very interested in the idea of the way that the grand political events of history is the thing that we really remember, where you know, the world seems to have approached a kind of possible crisis point from which, you know, if, if one thing happens, then one major outcome, if another, then another. And mm-hmm. how that is juxtaposed with this early thing. So the very beginning, he's at a boarding school and you make the point in your review that a lot of this mirrors Ian McEwan's own early life. He's at a boarding school and he has a particularly peculiar piano teacher. Tell us a bit about that. Now this, we should be clear, this particular thing is is not part of Ian McEwan's own personal biography. No, well, as far as I can tell, the character Roland Baines, his early life mirrors McEwan's life pretty much exactly. He's the son of a captain of the British Army, grows up in Libya where his father is stationed. His father is a kind of quite a bullying figure who's, you know, sometimes violent figure who he's terrified of. And aged 11, he's sent to this boarding grammar school, 
as McEwen was, sent from Libya to a boarding grammar school in Suffolk. You know, as far as I can tell, up until that point, their lives are pretty much identical. And then their lives start to diverge at the point at which Roland encounters this piano teacher, uh, Miriam Cornell, who on the first page of the novel sort of touches him inappropriately and uh, then kisses him on the lips. He's 11 years old at this point. The earliest and perhaps most decisive example in the novel of how historical events can play out on a personal level is that when the Cuban Missile Crisis happens, the then 14-year-old Roland starts to fear that he'll die a virgin, and so he tracks down this uh, piano teacher and embarks on an affair with her, and this affair changes the direction of his life, certainly sets him off on a different um, course to the course that McEwen himself went on, and it kind of, the novel tracks the, you know, the direction that his life goes in and tries to track the you know, the changes wrought in him by this event and by subsequent events, including his wife, uh, who leads him, leaves him rather, uh, when their child is just a baby. And the opening pages of the novel cut between these two traumatic events, between the piano lessons and the encounters with this sinister piano teacher and his early days as a single parent under suspicion from the police after his wife walks out on him. Do we get the impression that the, the, the big events like the Cuban Missile Crisis and Chernobyl and things like that, and do they, do they tie in, do they affect him as much? I mean, it's, you can't put an equivalence on it, but they also have a real effect on his life. Is that right? They're kind of part of the narrative. They're certainly part of the narrative. My reading of the novel was that part of the point of it was that it was talking about or it was interested in the impossibility of unpicking these different events from one another, the impossibility of really saying what effect any single event or process or, or thing has had on the course of a life. There are moments when, not so much when McEwen's writing about Roland, but when he talks about other characters, when it does give the impression that historical events are the most crucial formative features in people's lives. I mean, I guess they sometimes are and they sometimes aren't but this novel tracks both the sort of small personal events and the grand historical events and the ways in which both have have changed his personality and the course of his life. Is it right that uh, he talks about the fatwa on Salman Rushdie in 1989 in the book that's one of the events isn't it? I think that that is mentioned but it's certainly not a a major focus of the narrative. I think that does come up at one stage. Right, okay, that's, but that's, that doesn't affect him as it were, but that's one of the things that, so, so it tracks. No, it, it, yeah, I mean, that definitely doesn't play a big part in it. I think that that may come up. I mean, all sorts of stuff comes up. <laughs> it's a 500 page book, which does track a lot of history. I mean, you have everything and right up you to get the... COVID and Brexit and uh, Trump oh, and right. recent stuff. And does it ever feel like he's sort of ticking them off? Done that one, done that one, done that one, or is it all woven in I think it feels quite natural I mean one you know certainly Roland's politics are the same as McEwen's politics and so occasionally Roland does feel like a mouthpiece for McEwen's feelings about uh, political events about you know he's very excited when Blair gets elected and then he's very disillusioned when Iraq comes along and then he's very depressed by Brexit and just occasionally it does feel like that and you do think, given that his life sort of diverges from McEwen so radically, it's kind of interesting that their politics, you couldn't fit a pin between them. 
I didn't get the feeling that he was just taking them off, that he was just sort of running through the headlines. They are all major and memorable events, certainly the ones that have occurred during my lifetime. I would have to, if I was running through my own life and my own psychological development, they'd feature in there somewhere. I was interested in Roland as an autodidact, which you mentioned in the review, and also the fact that he wants to become a poet. The fact that he kind of goes back to school, as it were, as an adult, put me in mind of Julian Barnes's most recent novel, Elizabeth Finch, and this idea of a sort of lifelong learning and the mystery of learning. And juxtaposing that again with, with his attempts to become a poet, which contrast, of course, with his wife who has left him and does indeed become a novelist that seemed a very kind of tricksy and interesting part of of the narrative it did yeah I haven't read uh, Elizabeth Finch so I, I can't comment on on the comparisons or the similarities there it does I mean I suppose some of the questions it's asking are why do some people succeed and one why do some people fail because and, and you know what does success or failure look like in a life? What does it really amount to? You know, big questions. Because <laughs> um, certainly Roland in career terms, in sort of conventional status terms, does not have a successful life. Uh, he tries to be a poet and he fails. He ends up um, flitting between a number of uh, not particularly high status jobs. You know, he's a sort of a journalist for in-flight magazines and a, a pianist in hotel lounge bars and things. While his wife, who makes this big decision to walk out on him, becomes, she's a kind of Doris Lessing figure, really, and she ends up, like Lessing, uh, winning the Nobel Prize. And there are questions raised about the ruthlessness necessary in achieving things artistically and also about the possibility of taking ownership of one's life, whether life is always lived in reaction to certain events or whether it's possible to kind of grab it by the horns and take charge of it and, um, and direct it. And certainly the, the wife, Alyssa, the shape of her life is held up as a contrast to Roland's. And without giving too much away, but you're able to look at their lives side by side and she certainly had the more successful career but then he's got the family and you know there are questions raised about which of them is really the most successful and whether those uh, those different lives are even comparable uh, in any major way it sounds like an inversion of the old stereotypes that the wife is left at home with the baby and the man you know, goes off to great things and wins the Nobel Prize. I mean, I'm putting it very crudely. Does it feel like that or not really? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are two, so these two major traumas that occur in, in Roland's life are both inflicted on him by women. Um, you know, he's sexually abused as a child by a woman. And then a woman walks out on him, leaving him to deal with the baby and to pick up the pieces while she goes off and has a great career. McEwen is aware of this and he certainly you know, he has Roland commenting on the fact that this is unusual and the fact that men are usually the perpetrators of this kind of trauma. I mean, that seems to me okay. He acknowledges it. He sort of doesn't suggest that this is, um, that this is typical, what's happened to Roland, or that he's a, a typical um, victim. That strand unexpectedly puts me in mind of his last novel, I think, Machines Like These, where he has a kind of love triangle 
between you know an artificial human who suddenly starts creating love poetry and somehow you know we're as the readers are asked to examine whether if you create love poetry via algorithm it really does embody love and this kind of idea of what actually constitutes art and artistic success seems to be something that really is preoccupying him would you would you agree with that I certainly would agree with that. It's a bit of a red herring with this novel in some respects. Certainly it's a mistake to read this novel too much through the lens of his previous novels. I mean, I spent a lot of time while reading this novel imagining that like previous McEwan novels, it was going to have some sort of big twist at the end Mm -hmm. and therefore misread it. And most of the notes that I took were completely useless when it came to writing my review. So the whole thing took much longer than it should have done. but. Um, but yeah, I mean, I began to think that this this theme of, you know, what, what it takes to create things to have to achieve artistic success via success in life, it started to remind me of Henry James's The Lesson of the Master. And I thought, obviously, the title is an allusion to that. And by the end of the novel, I thought I was completely wrong about that. I mean, it's a complete red herring and it's actually a much bigger and much less kind of focused book than that. I mean, it's not Unlike most of his previous books, there isn't a single grand identifiable theme with this book, I'd say. It's it's much more sort of, you know, it has a much lighter touch in many ways. And in terms of the sheer sort of uh, twist, the idea of a narrative twist, you were sort of expecting a kind of an atonement or a sweet tooth because your previous uh, reading of him had sort of basically conditioned you to expect something like that. And it just didn't. It's just not that kind of novel. That's exactly right. I mean, I'd say that with machines like me, I had a not dissimilar experience, actually. I was expecting a a twist that never came, but uh, perhaps he's just done with twists. But yeah, it seemed, you know, I thought I was reading a typical Ian McEwan novel, and it's not. It's it's a different novel to anything he's written previously, and I'd say both its virtues and its defects are different to anything, any of his previous work. And I think think that's pretty cool in your 70s to be doing something completely different, something which succeeds and fails in different ways. I mean, I guess to me, I was also put in mind of uh, some of the explorations of masculinity and intimacy that happened way back in, you know, novels like A Child in Time. But as Mm. you say, there's just a, a decision to write a different type of novel. And I wonder when a writer does that, as you say, you know, with a very established career and a very successful career behind him, whether there is a sense in which he is kind of having a opening a sort of dialogue with critics and readers. Oh, I don't know how to answer that. Um... <laughs> <laughs> well, that that's your job, Edmund. That, that's what you have to do. <laughs> I mean, I, I suppose he is, whether he wants to be or not. I mean, you know, sort of um... confounding of expectations. I mean, you know, if you do write novels you know, that do have, you know, atonement, perhaps, you know, arguably his most successful novel in the breadth and, and width of its readership, then you are conditioning people to expect that kind of twist and then you say well I'm, I'm just mm. not doing that I'm not doing that. Uh, he's always expressed within these novels a certain scepticism about twists and about crucial uh, turning points and formative events um, about the kind of sleek shape of his fiction without ever enacting it at the level of form so he's been sort of trying to have his cake and eat it and 
here he's given up on that. So he's sort of loosened the reins a lot. I mean, I don't know if that's a conscious confounding of expectations or whether it's simply a sort of relaxing into his subject and realizing that he's actually, it turns out after all this time, he's just a phenomenal writer and he doesn't need the machinery of a tightly worked plot to sustain his readers' interests. And also, of course, a, a novel which does look over a whole life like this, I mean, it's just, it's inevitably moving and it's inevitably interesting in its relationship with history and things, just because life is, a long life inevitably is pretty moving towards the end and inevitably has an interesting relationship with history. I found the tone of it much more emotional than I had been expecting, much more kind mm. of diffuse and open to different kinds of interpretation, as you say, much less mm. tightly controlled. And that to me actually felt like quite a departure, quite surprising. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I have to say, I mean, although I've, I have enjoyed previous McEwan novels, but I've never really thought about one as much as I've thought about this one, having finished it. It's really sort of echoed around in my head for the last, I mean, I finished reading it about a fortnight ago. And I've really spent a lot of time thinking about it and feeling moved by it. And I think there is, you know, that does come from the loosening of the reins, from the following the drift of a life, from the sort of inclusion of inconsequential material in it. There's one bit about a hundred pages in where um, Roland is going to this piano teacher's house. And as he gets there, this man turns up and he has this brief conversation with the man. And I was still quite early in my reading of the novel. And I thought, right, this has to be important. This has to be crucial. Who is this guy? I'll note it down. He's bound to return, you know, sort of Chekhov's gun principle that somebody who's mentioned has to turn up and has to have a decisive role to play later. And he doesn't, the character never comes back. And the novel's full of things like that, things that just sort of happen just because they happen, just because they're interesting scenes in themselves. They play no part in the wider purpose of the novel, the wider scheme of things. Interesting, perhaps because previously in previous novels, that definitely would have been the smoking gun. Absolutely, it would have been. And I think, you know, I mean, the problem that I've had with some of his previous work is that it is too tightly controlled, it's too airless sometimes and this has you know it has the opposite problems there's there's plenty of air in it sometimes there are longers I mean there are passages which you think well actually you probably could have cut that but you know I think that's a nice problem to have really. It does remind me a bit of Julian Barnes's more recent work I don't mean in what it's doing I just mean that there was a sort of recognizable book that you could have summed up you could have said at one point this is kind of what a Julian Barnes novel does in the same mm. way that you said, well, this is what an, an Ian McEwan novel does. And Julian Barnes earlier, I think, just started writing different things, sometimes very moving, sometimes unexpected. They don't always land, but it is a, a kind of spirit of loosening or experimentation, which I think is quite wonderful, actually, and as you say, mm. quite late on. Well, actually, the novel that it reminded me of, in some ways, was Martin Amos's most recent novel, because both of the biggest things that the authors have written both mix autobiography with fiction and invention, both cover an enormous time span and both are certainly a lot looser. And it's, you know, it's not normally what we mean by late style. I mean, often late style is a kind of a paring down, a thinning out. And both of these guys seem to have become much more expansive in their, their 70s. 
I am very lucky, Edmund, in that I get to put questions for Ian McEwan next week uh, at an event mm. at the Festival Hall. Do come, our listeners. It's on the 14th of September. And so I am going to do now a very sort of chat show thing of saying, which question would you like me to ask him? <laughs> oh, golly. Um, <laughs> okay, hang on. I might, this might require a moment's thought. That's um, I think I'd like to know if he regards Roland as a failure, ultimately. Um, that is a great question. There you go. That's your opening question. And this has sorted. also been an invaluable research chat for me. <laughs> and frankly, <laughs> I feel at the That's... very least I owe you a drink, but possibly an actual, you know, an actual sub. Thank you. Well, I'll, 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 you know, I'll take either. I'll take anything, anything I can get. Thank you so much for joining us. This really does sound like as if it's going to reach a lot of people from the way that you're talking about it. Thank you very much for coming to talk to us about it this morning. Thank you very much for having me. It's been fun. have time for this week our thanks go to Thea Lenarduzzi and Edmund Gordon and thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Charlotte Pardy from Lucy Dallas and from me goodbye deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.